2: Hi, welcome to Drum Tower.
3: I'm David Rennie, the Economist's Beijing bureau chief.
2: And I'm Alice Su, the Economist's senior China correspondent based in Taipei.
3: Every week, we'll look at China inside and out, and ask a question that helps us work out what's going on.
2: This week, we're asking, do universal values really exist? The principles laid out in the founding documents of the United Nations over 70 years ago pledged to protect peace, democracy, individual rights, and freedoms.
3: China's Communist Party now says that there's no such thing as universal values and that they're just a Western excuse to keep China down. But Western leaders worry that China actually wants to override those principles to make the world safe for dictators.
2: Are these universal values real? It might seem like an abstract question, but it's at the heart of a real-time clash of ideologies in China, in Ukraine, and beyond.
3: What kind of world does China want now? To find out, I've been interviewing Chinese scholars, drinking tea with a retired military officer in Beijing.
2: We'll be hearing from a Chinese writer who fought for democracy in China, and we'll tell you a surprising discovery about some of the non-Western influences on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights.
3: This is Drumtar
2: from The Economist. Hey, David. How are you? It's good to see you.
3: Hi, Alice. Good to see you, if only online.
2: It's been almost a year, actually, I think, since I last saw you in Beijing. How are things?
3: It's kind of locked down, but uh, but it's awesome. And as you remember, autumn is one of the great seasons in Beijing. We've got the smell of wood smoke and chestnuts it's good
2: i've heard that things have not changed that much except that the frequency of covid tests has probably increased is that right
3: yeah we're up to every day at the moment oh wow but the good thing is that uh the people giving them got really bored mm-hmm. and so you know they used to really brutal and it could hurt and now it's just like they kind of they just like wave that thing at you but how are you finding taiwan
2: i did just recover from covid actually um But overall, Taiwan is good. In some ways, it's almost like an alternate Beijing because there are so many journalists here now that you and I both knew when we were in Beijing the last few years. And last night, I was at a bar with a bunch of reporters. I think four out of five people there were China reporters. We were joking like, oh, it's almost like we're in Jingye, like we're in this popular bar in Beijing. Except that then we realized that the other side of the bar was Uer Kaisi, who is, as you know, this Uyghur student leader from the Tiananmen protest, and he was kind of you know casually sitting on the other side of the bar, just like having a drink. And then we thought, okay, so this is almost like Beijing, but not quite, right?
3: That is not Beijing. Yeah.
2: No, no. There's some key differences. As you know, the reason why there are so many China reporters gathering in, in Taiwan and also in Singapore and in other places around the region is because it's, it's gotten so much harder to be in China these days. A number of the people who are here are journalists who are expelled, but many others are just journalists who changed outlets and wanted to get visas and couldn't get them. COVID is one reason for the seemingly indefinite delay for a lot of reporters, but another reason is just that China has become much more hostile to Western reporters.
3: It's weirdly retro here. I was very first here in the '90s, and you know there were kind of hardly any journalists. We also huddled together, try and work out, try and work out what was going on, and it's kind of come full circle. Yeah, Um, we're sort of back down to you can get you know the entire press corps into a sort of large taxi.
2: I do kind of miss everyone banding together from survival, that kind of community feel in Beijing.
3: There's a trend to all of this. So when I was first a reporter here in the 1990s, you know the Chinese would give us a hard time, but there was basically a feeling that a grown-up great power, a rising power, had foreign journalists sort of posted. And they were sort of almost pleased that uh, big news organizations wanted to be here. I think the thing that has really changed since I came back in 2018 for my second posting is that China now understands that it has all the leverage, that serious news organizations need to be here. It's such an important story. And that gives them a lot of power. They hold sort of visas over us and access over us. And I think that that's part of this story with their willingness now to challenge universal values, and the rules-based order.
2: That's right. And yet, despite all that, you're still there. You're still in Beijing. And you have just written an entire special report on the world China wants. It's an exploration of how China wants to reshape the world order. What was it like trying to get sources for that report? Were party officials open to speaking with you?
3: Well, the flip side of the Communist Party's assertiveness is that I do find people in the machine are now a bit more willing to say what they think
2: as opposed to before when they would be trying to play to the Westerner and say, you know, one day we will converge with your values, right? You're saying now they're much more straightforward. What is it that they're telling you exactly?
3: Well, a really interesting example is there's this former senior colonel in the People's Liberation Army called Zhou Buo. Um, he studied overseas. He worked a lot with foreign military. So for, you know, he did like counter piracy in Africa. He now is a senior fellow at the Center for International Security and Strategy at Tsinghua University. And a few months ago, I bicycled to meet him in the heart of the old city, Imperial Beijing. And we met in a hutong, you know, the the low gray alleyways. And once we'd talked my way past a COVID checkpoint, because the local residents (laughs) are not keen on a foreigner in their hutong, Zhou Boa invited me for tea at an old courtyard house. And pretty soon we were wrangling about whether a liberal international order even exists.
1: Do we have such things like a liberal international order? This is the fundamental question, because this is something the West has been insisting. My argument is, of course, there is a kind of order at any given time in human history. But the so-called liberal international order is very much a myth.
2: What does he mean by that? The liberal international order is a myth. Does he mean there is no such order or the liberal values that underpin that order are farcical? You know, what is he trying to say?
3: It's really interesting. China has started showing its hand much more. So, last year, China's foreign minister actually said that the rules based order was a kind of a Western plot explicitly. He said that it was an attempt to impose the the house rules of a few countries. And this is the Chinese line. But there was always an element before where China was like, give us time. You know, we have to focus on getting people fed and housed first. And then maybe we'll look at some of these values. Now, China is basically saying, you know what? It's racist, it's colonial minded. It's insensitive, it's culturally inappropriate to try and impose these values, and they're very smart about realizing that you know the West is also having a crisis of self-confidence, right mm-hmm. and that world democracies are not in great shape. China is sensing an opportunity to really push hard on a West that is not sure actually that it can defend its own rules-based order
2: Yeah, that's right. One thing that we hear Xi Jinping saying a lot is that this is the moment for changes unseen in a hundred years, and What he actually means when he says that is that this is the moment for the inevitable decline of the West, for the fall of American power, and for the rise of the East, led by China. Based on your reporting, David, what do you think that means for the rest of the world?
3: What's really interesting is that China is ready to offer its model to other countries. And what is that model? It's basically that the Communist Party, the ruler, decides what is important, what is good for most people. So it's order, stability, security getting people better housed and fed. And as long as the ruler is delivering that for a majority, then if there's a minority that gets in the way, then they can be crushed and don't get too fussed about individual freedoms and rights. And the thing that I discovered the more I dug into this is that it's kind of back to the future, that actually what China is doing a lot of the time is going back to arguments that maybe people thought were done and dusted 70 something years ago when the UN was founded. Because there was a tension at the beginning of the rules-based order After World War II, between the absolute defense of national sovereignty and deferring to governments, but also the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the idea that individuals have inalienable rights. And those really contradictory, conflicting ideas were put into the founding documents of the UN. And it's as if China now feels a moment has come where it's strong enough and has countries on its side that it can go back to those unresolved arguments of 70 something years ago and reopen them. And this time, the countries that stand for sovereignty and deference to state power, that maybe this time they can win that argument and beat back the individual liberties crowd.
2: You know, I used to be based in the Middle East, and there are a lot of people around the world, especially in developing countries, who would see an appeal in part of the CCP argument. People in parts of the Global South see that Western powers speak about universal values, but then don't live up to them. So I do think we need to question, you know, is this liberal world order a myth? Is it an illusion? A lot of people might say it is falling apart anyway because of the hypocrisy of the West.
3: So you're absolutely right that that is a powerful argument, and it is certainly one that China uses a lot. And I guess, you know, we at The Economist, we've realized that after things like the invasion of Iraq, the election of Donald Trump, and other kind of disasters for the West's credibility, we have to defend what we believe from first principles. So why do we? And I guess one of the things that we would push back, and I think you can do this with China, is, you know, China's tactic is to suggest that clean government, having a kind of independent judiciary having transparent contracts when you kind of borrow money to build a motorway, having those documents be public or made available to parliament, for example, having lawyers and civil society groups able to question what their rulers are doing, that that's kind of a racist imposition. It's like telling people what religion they should have, what God they should pray to. And I think we don't think that clean government is like telling someone which religion they should believe in. We think that clean government is like clean water, that it's just a basic good. And that the more people that have access to it, like clean water, the better.
2: What is it about China making this argument that is so particularly threatening?
3: I think China is bigger than the other autocracies, and it's smarter than some of the countries like Russia. I mean, Russia does kind of brazen defiance—you know, invades Ukraine and then vetoes any sort of condemnation of its invasion at the Security Council. Russia doesn't care about being isolated. The UN, for example, it often have you know Belarus and Venezuela and Syria on its side, and no one else. China is much smarter. China is always trying to get dozens and dozens of countries to vote with it on big important questions about human rights or the rules-based order. And for China, one of the smart things they do is that they're trying to reshape the world order from within. And when it meets resistance, uh, it always says, well, let's have some vague rules. Let's just you know, make these terms not particularly kind of sharp and binding. And so they'll sort of start talking about, well, we have great human rights. You have great human rights. And Maybe we should just have such a loose definition that everyone has human rights, or we're a democracy and our democracy is better than your version of democracy. And so they kind of redefine these core terms so that they no longer really mean very much at all. And the other cool thing they're doing, which is really smart because they're actually pushing on a mistake that we make in the West, which is that it's probably true that we've been really Western centric for a long time. And so for us, you know, 1945, the end of World War II is a magic year. And you know, never again referring to the kind of the horrors of Nazism in World War II. And, you know, that's the kind of the core kind of driving force of things like the European Union and a lot of the Atlantic order. And you've seen China's leader Xi Jinping actually saying, for example, to European Union leaders at a, at a summit earlier this year, you know, we don't accept that you have some special right to talk about human rights just because of what happened in, in Europe in World War II, because look at what Europeans did as colonial powers in China. And what he was really saying is that For China, 1945 is not a magic year and you don't get some special moral right to draw up the order. And there's a lot of countries that would agree with him. So we do need to avoid being too Western-centric and get back to first principles about, you know, why do these basic liberties for individuals, why does the idea of individuals having some rights and not just the tyranny of the majority, why is that the order that we think is good for the whole world and not just for the West?
2: But I mean, the core reason that China' is making all these arguments, at the end of the day, it really has to do with what's happening inside China, right? Why does the Chinese government care so much about invalidating the idea of universal values?
3: It's a really good question. It's mostly about trying to prevent the international system from being able to hold China to account or sanction China. That's fundamentally China's interest. And so, you know if they defend Putin from being sort of held to account for what he's doing in Ukraine, for example. It's not because China cares about who runs Donetsk or Luhansk. It's because they don't like the idea of sanctions and international condemnation of a government for an invasion, because maybe China might invade Taiwan or bomb the city where you're sitting right now, Taipei.
2: I think also possibly, to me, the the most infuriating thing about making this argument that universal values don't exist and they're a Western thing is that the Chinese government is not giving Chinese people... The space to speak, right? They're saying that any Chinese person who wants transparent government and wants accountability and wants the rule of law, anyone who who is saying those things, they're traitors, they're race traitors, and they're influenced by hostile foreign forces. And because of the time that I spent in China in the last few years, I saw that that just wasn't true. There are so many Chinese people who are looking for those things, and and they're not approaching them from this abstract philosophical angle, and they're not necessarily reading books of Western philosophy and then saying, I want this Western thing, I want this outside thing. Oftentimes, there are Chinese individuals who have just experienced some sort of injustice, right? They've just experienced that officials are working with a corrupt company that's illegally dumping chemicals in their backyard, and they don't have any space to speak against it. They seek out these mechanisms of good governance
3: on their own. I mean, actually, Alice, you and I both reported on the lockdown in Shanghai earlier this year, where for more than two months, this huge city of 25 million people were basically locked indoors, sometimes didn't have enough food to eat. And I thought what was fascinating about the voices we heard from Shanghai was these are people who had often been on the right side of that majority-minority divide. These are not Tibetans or Uyghurs who've always been persecuted. These were some of the most affluent, uh, the most privileged Chinese there were, who often had no problem with the Chinese system, because it always worked well for them. But what was amazing was the voices you heard out of that lockdown, where people suddenly could realise that they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And suddenly the state was crushing them. And I heard an extraordinary story, really moving story about a migrant worker from a poor inland province who was in a worker's dormitory in a suburb of Shanghai for more than two months, locked in. And one of her neighbours committed suicide by jumping from the building. And a lot of people saw it, And then the management sent a note round to everyone saying, nobody jumped, you didn't see it. And when that migrant worker got back to work in central Shanghai, she said to her employer, as a foreigner, you know, I don't need your Western freedoms, but I do need the right to know that I saw what I saw.
2: We'll be back in a moment and we'll be hearing from writer Jia Jianying. She fell in love with democratic values after experiencing Mao-era China, but now, living in the USA, she's also had to wrangle with the uglier side of Western democracy.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, That's Stamps.com. Code program.
2: Welcome back to Drum Tower, where we're investigating China's Communist Party's claim that universal values are Western values. You can read much more of David's reporting on the world China wants in his special report. To read it in full, subscribe at economist.com slash drum offer. That's where you can find the best introductory rate.
3: Alice, you were saying it frustrates you when nationalists and the party say that anyone who wants these values uh, is an agent of the CIA or of a, of a hostile foreign force. And Of course, no group gets that accusation more kind of acutely, more sharply than the first generation of Chinese liberals who left China When reform and opening allowed them to go to the West, and they really put their faith in the West. You know, they got the chance to study in the United States or other Western countries. Once Chairman Mao's death opened the country up, and now those same people—they're—they're called dupes. You know, you have famous celebrity nationalists here in China uh, who call them the kind of the Dongtapai. You know, the Beaconists—the people who think that America is still a lighthouse, a beacon on the hill—and Jia Jianying is a brilliant writer based in uh, New York, and she's written some fantastic short stories about being part of that generation, that first group of pioneers who, who reached Western campuses in the 1980s and how kind of naive and enthusiastic they were at the beginning about how everything Western was perfect.
2: We called Jia Dianying in her apartment in New York City, and we asked her to tell us about her journey with these liberal democratic values.
1: I ended up in the U.S. as a student in late 1981. And those were really the years that so many Chinese were curious and hungry about ideas from the West, from the outside world, because we just have suffered two decades of isolation with all kinds of, you know, persecution and ignorance and poverty. My father was away in the labor camp during those years. So we went to the West not only just to learn about how the West was wealthy and powerful, but also about those values of freedom and democracy, the ideas that would help us to change China when we return. We love China. We would like to make China better and more democratic. And we did have a relatively liberal decades in the 1980s. But all of that was kind of crushed by tanks in 1989 on Tiananmen Square. And since then, I think the journey has really changed and become, you know, much darkened and mixed.
3: Jenny, can I ask you about 1989? Because I think you were in Beijing during the student protests, the anti-government protests in around Tiananmen Square. Were people around you, when they talked about democracy and more freedoms, were they saying that they wanted to become a perfect carbon copy of the United States? Or were they talking about simpler bigger kind of ideas about accountability and just a government that listens to individuals more?
1: I think a lot of ordinary Chinese who turned out protesting, joining the demonstrations on the street of Beijing, you know, because some days there are a million people on the streets, probably a lot of them have a simpler idea about we want a more open government that puts some check and balance on this, you know, sort of, black box politics. Everybody knows there are so many corrupt officials, but there's no way without open press, without access to information, you cannot expose them. And people really suffer in their lives. So I think probably the majority of Chinese protesting on the streets really just want more transparency, more accountability. Of course, you know the prime symbol of all that aspiration and frustration ended up being expressed by the students on the square with things like uh, they actually erected a goddess of democracy, which, in that sense, it is you know sort of aspiring after the American liberty and freedom. But I mean, it's a multi-levelled kind of a movement asking for more freedoms in different ways.
3: Jin Ying, do you accept the Communist Party line that the values that you're talking about, about accountability and openness and a free press, that they're American values, and that they cannot be Chinese values?
1: What we mean by universal values is really a set of modern liberal values, first you know, championed and debated and pushed for in the West which tracks back all the way to the Greek polis and the Roman republics uh, through a whole century of Western Enlightenment and Renaissance. So, you know, to say that these so-called universal values, just because they started out in the West, are not universal, is completely hypocritic. Because we're talking about certain fundamental truths that every human being who wants to live in dignity would want to. These are true Chinese aspirations. And the Chinese Communist Party and its propagandists should not be the sole arbiter of what Chinese aspirations are, what are the universal values. Every Chinese, like myself, and, and I know thousands, tens of thousands of fellow Chinese, like myself, who share these values, but so many of them are silenced, especially those in China. Constant censorship, because the Chinese Communist Party know this does not serve their purpose. If more Chinese will embrace those values, the more difficult it will be for them to monopolize power. Have you interacted much with
2: Chinese people of younger generations who grew up in a, a more prosperous China, you know, urban, middle and upper class Chinese who maybe don't really know anything about what truly happened under Mao. They don't know much about Tiananmen. And a lot of them kind of seem to buy into this idea of the Chinese system is also good. It doesn't have to
1: be like a Western democracy. So you're talking about A large number of younger Chinese who basically were deliberately led to believe a certain whitewashed version of Chinese history. And those also happened to be the version of history that amplified all the so-called the century of humiliation under foreign powers. So you have young people who felt the Opium War was like yesterday, whereas Tiananmen did not exist. So these are, you know, the sort of effect of collective amnesia. I think the party state instilled on these youngsters. Unfortunately, a lot of them do buy in for that and wanted to believe that the China model is better for China.
2: I do want to ask you, though, what has the experience been like for you getting really up close and living in the gritty reality of, say, American democracy?
1: It's a long and complicated journey. I think we did start out as the sort of more naive, idealistic beaconists, you know, who treat America as a near perfect country in terms of the kind of freedoms, rule of law that we aspire to bring back to China. But then I think, really, in the last 10, 15 years or so, after the financial crisis and then the rise of the sort of more right-wing politics and the American people's discontent with the dark side of globalization, I think we come to have a more sobering and realistic view of America as a country with flawed democracy. But it's not a matter of whether America has a perfect democracy, but, you know, that it continues to be open and continue to improve itself. Whereas in China, you see a backward movement where even some of the limited civil rights are being rolled back. So I don't think this changes our minds about the so-called universal values.
3: So if you're an optimist, maybe the best thing that can happen to universal values is to lose that Western label and accept that there's all kinds of stuff wrong with, you know, Western democracies. And it's for the whole world to try and work out what's important about this rules-based order.
2: Yeah, and actually, when we looked into the history of how this order came to be, we discovered that it wasn't just a bunch of Western powers imposing these values on others. We decided to go back to the 1940s to look at the founding documents and to look at the drafting of the UN Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights.
3: And it's fascinating when you dig into the transcripts of those debates at the UN's founding just after World War II, you know, the British were still defending a colonial empire and they weren't that happy about the idea of colonial subjects having the same rights as, say, British people living in the UK. And they went to the UN General Assembly to try and undermine some of that language. And and what's fascinating about the history is that you see small states, you see individuals and NGOs fighting a language that meant that the same universal values would apply to everyone on earth, including people in colonies. And in the end, the UK had to give way.
2: So it really wasn't the West versus the rest. I mean, in fact, if you go back into the records and read the debates around this time, you'll find references to Mencius and Confucius, you know, classic Chinese philosophers. And these are coming from a man named PC Chang or Zhang Pengchun. The eight members
1: of the Drafting Committee of the Commission on Human Rights are now meeting with the objective of drawing up a first preliminary draft of a Bill of Human
2: Rights. This is Eleanor Roosevelt in 1947, when she was chairwoman of the Drafting Committee on the Commission of Human Rights.
1: Next, the delegate... From China, who is also vice chairman of the committee, Dr. P.C.
2: Chang. He was a delegate from the Republic of China at that time to these consultations, and he had immense influence on the way that this document was written. One of the many ways that he influenced the wording of this document was that he added the word conscience into this sentence. It's Article 1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and it says, All humans are born free and equal, with dignity and rights. They're endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in the spirit of brotherhood. So P.C. Chang, the Chinese delegate, he's the one who suggested to add the word conscience. And he was really trying to translate this Chinese term, ren, which means benevolence or compassion towards one another. And so you can see that when he argued for the importance of human rights and protecting individuals, he based his argument on very classical Chinese concepts of morality and of duty to one another. And so I think, you know, to say that these values came from the West, it's it's actually just factually incorrect.
3: And I would argue, Alice, that when we are told as reporters for a British news organization that it's racist to talk about human rights applying in a place like China, I would turn that on its head and say how incredibly racist to say that just because people are from a Chinese culture, they don't deserve individual rights. And you live in a Chinese cultural democracy, right? Which that's is the right. proof that this is, you know, the Chinese Communist Party does not own Chinese culture.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think kind of going back to our conversation with Jia Ying, I mean, all you have to do is look back at the history of the 1980s, not only in China, but across Asia, right? Looking at South Korea, looking at Taiwan, and you can see many... Asian people from different cultures fighting for these kinds of values and by no means fighting for them because they want to be Western. They're fighting for them because they want to live with dignity and they want to have a say and they want to have transparency in their government. At the heart of it, it's a human thing. It's a human desire.
3: Absolutely. And the amazing thing about that moment in history, right at the end of the horrors of World War II, was that that human desire, that ambition came together with world powers small countries, even individuals of lawyers and intellectuals are determined to make sure that some basic rights and freedoms were given to everyone equally in the world. It's understandable that China wants to make a world that is more comfortable for China, but I think we have a right to worry that it's dragging us back to a way that things were for most of human history, which was that the strong could bully the weak with impunity and that might makes right. And China has plenty of targets when it's attacking Western progress but just because progress is hard and progress is faltering, that can't be a reason to go backwards.
2: It's not just the idea of might or makes right and impunity, but it's also the idea of who gets to speak for a culture and its values, right? Is it the governments and the states that are holding power through force? Or do ordinary people get to speak to civilians and citizens? Do they also have a say?
3: You're absolutely right. And I think that's, I hope, going to be part of what we try to do with this podcast, right? Because, you know, you did this so brilliantly as a reporter in China, is giving people the right to speak and not letting the government or the Communist Party dictate who is the representative of 1.4 billion people. It's a very diverse country with very diverse experiences.
2: Yeah, exactly. Letting Chinese individuals and Chinese people tell their stories rather than claiming that the only China story is the one that the Communist Party tells.
3: And that's where you, our listeners, come in. We would love to hear from you. Tell us things we haven't considered or questions you have about China.
2: And if you have something to say, record a voice note or write a message and send it via email to drum at economist.com.
3: We also have a Drum Tower newsletter and you can sign up for that at economist.com slash drum newsletter. And in the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more Drum Tower next week. Our
2: editor is Poppy Sibag Montefiore, who produced this episode with Barclay Bram. Our sound engineer is Wei Dong Lin. Music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producers are Sandra Schmueli and John Shields.